Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of All Out War. I am Turner, and I am in the studio with Rosie. Rosie, what's up? Hey. And we are joined again with and by Rachel. What's up, Rachel? Hey, hey. good to be here. <laughs> Our newest warrior to the clan. <laughs> oh, man, dude. Got some exciting news right now. Mm-hmm. I tweeted, I uh, Instagrammed this uh, out. I didn't tweet it out. I should have probably tweeted it out too, but um, we have an exciting announcement. Last week we had a great announcement. Rachel was going to be joining us as uh, you know as a, a as a third uh, host here on the on the podcast as much as she can. And I was we were reached out by a good friend of ours, another podcast who one of their hosts owns. And she is a Christian. Uh, they have a they're a coffee roaster. It's called uh, Kahi Coffee, and Kahi Coffee. It's Hawaiian. She's Hawaiian, and uh, they asked if we would be wanting if we would want to partner with them f- for coffee. And here's the big thing that's so amazing about this thing. So, if you drink coffee and you uh, enjoy coffee and you buy your coffee, you know, at Giant or wherever you go, um, you would want to start ordering it from them because when you order it from Kahi Coffee, you can go directly through to them, the provider, the roaster, and not only that, but you support us because they kick back a percentage of the sales to us. If you buy through them by using our, you'll see our podcast logo on their website when you go to order. So they are um, trying to support us and help us by kicking back and uh, giving a percentage back, which is really, really cool. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like we've all... I need a new car. (laughs) So you need to buy a lot of coffee. A lot of coffee. That's what we're going to spend the money on. It's going to... You don't even drink coffee. (laughs) I don't don't even drink coffee. I just want a new car. I know. I know. You just want a new car. I see all those Bentleys, and I'm like, you know what? All those pastors get them. Why can't I? (laughs) I need an airplane. I don't know what happened. I have to nowhere me. to fly. <laughs> oh man! Uh, so if you go to if you go to to kahiroastingco dot com, and we're going to put the links in our show notes so you can connect right to them. It's uh, k a h i roastingco co dot com. Uh, just go to their website and you look for our logo. It'll be up there on the first of July. So in a couple of days they'll have our logo up there. Uh, you can click on. It'll it'll say support all out war, and you just click on it, and it will you buy your coffee through that. They will be able to know that you bought it through our logo, and then they'll keep track and they'll send us a kickback on that. We uh, so we do make money off of this. Here's the thing: in the 88 episodes that we've done this, we have spent way more than we will ever make. I'm guessing. Um, yeah. Unless like Tesla does want to sponsor us and give Rosie a car and oh I don't want a Tesla why not <laughs> I hate electric you cars. can sell it man okay Just, yeah people love those oh, cars yeah, okay anyways uh, we we've never made a dime we've spent money to do this and it's because we love it and we enjoy it and. Um, you know, it's just something that we feel like we're supposed to be doing anyway. So, and so all the money's going to go back to the podcast. That's right. It's going to underwrite. That's yeah. exactly what it's going to do. And, uh, so and uh, we're talking about hosting fees and stuff like that. Yeah. So maybe a new microphone for Rachel or something like yes. that. You know, that's what we're going to do. So go to Kahi coffee, check them out, click on. And I just want to say we're, we're one of three other podcasts that they do. 
So there's four total podcasts that, that you can buy coffee through that they support. One of them is Cultish. Mm-hmm. They came out of Apologia Studios. Uh, Cultish is an amazing podcast. Um, the other one is Five Solas Studio. And uh, I'm, I'm assuming that's a Calvinist uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. And the other one is Theologeeks Theolo- and uh, podcast. These are not weak podcasts. These are like legit like podcasts that to be, to, to have firepower. (laughs) Yeah. To have our name there with them. I'm just really humbled. Like, yeah, it kind of makes me freak out a little bit. (laughs) Like we got to do a better job. So it's true (laughs) for our free, Hey, you get what you pay for. Right. (laughs) 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 So anyway, so go to Kahi coffee. We're going to put the show notes, the links in the show notes, and this is exciting for us. And so if you buy coffee, I think it's like, that's like 15 bucks for a bag of coffee. They mail it right to your house. They have different blends that you can get Ethiopian, Kenyan, you can get Colombian. They have Honduran, Brazilian, like a plethora of choices just get one of each for your first order <laughs> through us and then figure out which one you like best. And the good news is, is we're going to be doing a giveaway as, as well. So pay attention to our Instagram page. If you haven't follow us, go to find us on Instagram, all out war. If you're listening on Spotify or YouTube, go to our Instagram page, follow <laughs> us there. Um, we have updates and all kinds of cool stuff going on there. And uh, so we will be doing a giveaway through our Instagram account and uh on social media there um in the next week or so um and so that'll be fun so you might get a free bag on us well on on kahi kahi coffee because they're they're the ones that are providing it (laughs) for the giveaway they're very generous and i'm excited to try this coffee i think i'm gonna try the the medium roast brazilian it looks uh it looks pretty cool to me so anyways so rosie what do you know man oh hey um, did you know, you know that there is a war between North and South Korea. They don't like them each other very much. They don't like each other very much, right? North and South Korea? Yeah. Yeah, they hate each other. So listen to this. They've been getting into different kinds of warfare that has been taking place. So let me read this real quick. South Korea has been playing propaganda messages over the loudspeakers, which North Korea's state-run news agency is calling anti-pyongyang psychological warfare and the north has threatened war if the speakers aren't shut off oh so they're and this is a while ago but guess what south korea was playing <laughs> that was driving do I, do the I north think, koreans so crazy uh was it gangnam style <laughs> i don't know well it was k-pop k-pop <laughs> <laughs> it said check this out when the North fired a torpedo that sank a warship in 2010, the South responded by playing a song called Hit Your Heart by the girl group <laughs> Four Minute. It says, check this out. The lyrics, here's the lyrics. Baby, you're kidding me, question mark. You're kidding me? I do what I want and I do it my way. Were a dig at the North's regimented control over its citizens' speech. <laughs> Nice. And then uh, North Korea said they were so incensed by this that they threatened to turn Seoul into, quote, a sea of flames if they didn't turn down the music. <laughs> so they, they, they gloated to them with music of their freedom. Yes. Which is so, and that's, then, that's cool. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> they threatened to burn down Seoul because they wouldn't, South kept playing 
K-pop and, and at the, K-pop at the of DMZ. all things. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. So there you go. All right. All right, man. Well, that's a good one. I like that one. And speaking of uh, crazy nations and things, we have an amazing podcast on the origins of Washington, D.C. and the connections to Freemasonry and et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to jump into that on the other side of this. So sit back, grab a Kahi coffee, and enjoy. You're listening to the All Out War Podcast. That's right, Warriors. Oh, man. We have a great episode here. So, guys, I got up at like, I don't, I want to say I got up around 4.30 this morning, and I was very concerned because I had so many pages of notes that I had been accumulating over the last two or three weeks that uh, I wasn't sure how to make it all make sense. Mm. Because there's so many rabbit trails that you can literally go down on this topic of the origins of Washington, D.C. Now, I'll just let the cat out of the bag for our listeners. I grew up in this in the area of Washington, D.C., the metropolitan area. Been here my whole life. Every day when I go to my day job, I'm working about, right now, I'm working about a block from the Supreme Court and about two blocks from the Capitol. Mm. So I pass by all of these structures and I go in all these uh, these places, some of them we're gonna talk about um, when we go through this. And one of the things that um, that just was, I started to notice, I had never worked downtown before, and when, one of the things that I noticed is there was so many Freemason logos and imagery and just things that were just right out in front that I, it almost was like you don't notice it, it's so in front of you. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, then I started to... Um, like really think of, it was like I was like hmm. and it all started when I went to lunch one day I walked to this place called uh, We the Pizza which is a great it's on Capitol Hill it's a great if you ever in DC and you go to see the Capitol go to We the Pizza it's like it's like right there next to the Capitol um, and uh, great pizza by the way and um, th- when I was walking by there was a map of that kind of whole area the the Capitol Hill area and when I looked at the map I realized that it the whole road structure and everything looked like an owl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, that's really weird. And then as I was walking back to my job site, uh, I went past the Supreme Court and I looked up and I noticed uh, on the very top of the Supreme Court, there's like, it almost looks like Greek gods that are carved out of the top of the of the building. The building itself looks sort of like a Parthenon. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird, you know, the Supreme Court building. I've been inside the Supreme Court. It's completely marble floor to ceiling. It's incredible, like when you go inside. And yeah, walk, the old Greco-Roman. Very Greco-Roman, yeah. And I think it's a nod to that, obviously. But but there's also, there's reasons they picked and there's reasons that they, uh, that they did it, that they designed the city and the people that had their hand in designing the city and all of that, and there's some roots in that. And that's all, that's where the Freemasonry comes in. And so, um, and if you know anything about Freemasonry, that should not make you have excitement or joy. Um, now, Rosie, you brought up a great point before we started recording um, about uh, just this topic and and kind of like our response to some of the things that we're going to talk about. And I, I'd love for you to share what you were saying to us. Oh, so my whole point is that um, 
So you were, it was interesting when we were talking before this, like leading up to this episode, uh, I, I read a lot about a lot of weird stuff, obviously. Um, I think that doesn't surprise people and <laughs> conspiracy stuff. And this was one thing that I've always known about, but I never really looked into um, because it was kind of upsetting or I, I don't know, not upsetting, but I didn't want to. It's, it's just, there's certain things I just like never looked into cause I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to know about that. Yeah. Uh, I want to remain blue pilled <laughs> so to speak, even though that's such a cringe thing to say. Um, so anyways, um, yeah, I was going to say, obviously, I think all three of us, if I'm speaking for all three of us, we are conservative. We love America. We are pro America, America first. Um, well, and, America first asterisk. Yes. America first asterisk. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the whole thing, uh, that this might upset you listening, this might upset me like this, this kind of stuff that you might not know about, um, the founding of America and all this, these ties. So that's a long way to say, um, it's important to remember that we are, we are called to be Christians first and then Americans or your nationality afterwards. Because we do have people that are not American that listen to this yeah. podcast, yeah, which is right. interesting. But anyway, so good day, good day, listeners yeah. down under. Um, yeah, that's the only one we can probably. I don't know how to say it. British. Do we got a lot of British listeners? Hey, mate. No, that's that's, that's Australian. <laughs> they still say that too. Um, anyway, anyway, so you bloody fool. Christians first. That's the thing that I think is important to remember. Um, like I, and we were talking about this, and I think we all agreed on this. I would not want to be. I don't know. I would. I would like. I would never denounce my citizenship. Right. I feel very fortunate to have been born in America. I'm proud to be an American. I wouldn't want to be anything else. Maybe Polish, because I like my Polish in there. They're pretty, pretty based. They're, they're pretty based right now. They're, I don't know. They're yeah. doing a lot of really good stuff. Um, maybe I would, they wouldn't let you in, though. <laughs> that's probably true. Yeah, I probably wouldn't do. I wouldn't be able to get in um, if I wanted to move there or anything like that, which I don't. Maybe. Um, anyways, so this is. I, I'm just trying to reinforce that we are not anti-American. Yeah. Um, even though some of this stuff. Yeah. So that's it'll it. it'll it'll have. It's not going to. Yeah. There's some things that are just disturbing yeah. in our history and some things that are, there's a lot of question marks about things. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. We're still a young nation and there's still time to make some changes that need, may need to be made, you know, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, when it comes down to it for a Christian, this world is not our home. We are pilgrims passing through and we are ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven. That is our true home. So mm-hmm. getting comfortable here is not ideal and it's actually discouraged by our Lord and Savior, mm. you know. Um, so, but so many principles of America are blessed by God because yes. they are honoring to him um, in some way. Or we used to be. Yeah, yeah they <laughs> used to be. Yeah. At least like you like try to have some semblance of uh, morality based in, scripture whether or not they were like devout christians of a particular denomination but mm-hmm. first and foremost they were all humans and so humans all have their weaknesses i guess yeah. so mm-hmm. yeah that's right so let's uh so thanks for that warning and that's a good reminder so here's some things that i found as i started to unpack 
the origins of DC. And I kind of went on a real logical path, like like who settled the city? Who, who named the city? How did it happen? And I came across two important names that um, I wanted to talk about real briefly. One of them is a man by the name of Francis Pope. Yes, not Pope Francis, but Francis Pope. And uh, Francis Pope was the owner of what would become known as the Maryland side of Washington, D.C., and it would basically be from the Anacostia River north and east on that whole side, which is part of D.C. now. And he, Francis Pope, he named the, the land that he owned Rome. That's what he called it. He called it Rome. And so it was Rome, Maryland, and the part of the what is now the Anacostia River, which is also part of a tributary to the Potomac River, is was called the Tiber River. And if you know anything about Rome, if you know anything about Italy like that in that area, the Tiber River is sits alongside the city of Rome. So you have he was literally mimicking what was found in Italy with Rome and the Tiber. That's really interesting uh, that you said that. And I was going to say, I know that uh, a Catholic phrase that they still use now, um, when they say someone uh, s- made the swim across the Tiber, means they became Catholic. Oh, cool. So there's a little thing for yeah. you. So, hmm. Jeannie, so it is an important river. It is an Catholics. important river, yeah. And th- it has some uh, really dark history, too. Mm-hmm. So which I'm going to share some of that stuff, which I went down a couple rabbit holes. Maybe <laughs> I wish I would have never gone down. <laughs> Uh, but from genealogy.com, I found this Francis Pope, owner of Rome, which is that part of D.C. and Maryland, on the Tiber, uh, June 5th, 1663. So this is a long time ago. In the early records of Annapolis, one finds Francis Pope transported since 1635, his wife, 1640, he found his wife in 1649, and the proceedings of his early assemblies. Francis Pope, a member of the assembly in September of 1642. To 1667, he was the justice of the peace for Charles County, Maryland, uh, in 1670. Essentially, the land that makes up the Maryland side of the Potomac River in the current Washington D.C. was owned by Francis Pope and was originally named Rome. I already said that. Francis Pope was greatly influenced by a man by the name of Francis Neal, and this man is important. Francis Neal was the Jesuit was a Jesuit bishop in Maryland, and he encouraged Francis to give his land over to the new capital city that was to be built. So um, I'm going to come back to the Jesuits in just a second. The interesting thing about all this, Francis was obviously a Catholic. Um, Catholicism at this point in America's history was outlawed. So it was not It was against the law to be a Catholic at this point in American history. It wasn't going to be until 17, I want to say 1740s maybe, 1730s, somewhere in there, when they actually instituted, because there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of uh, discrimination happening towards Catholics that were coming over from Ireland and England, settling here, and they just didn't have a place to worship. They didn't, you know, and they decided that they were going to make it a little bit easier for them. But there was a strong anti-Catholic sentiment in the founding of America, and it makes sense when you think about them leaving the tyranny, you know, to f- discover America. They were leaving that tyranny of to settle here of for freedom of religion, mm-hmm. and so they it didn't have a good 
you know, taste in their mouth. But this guy, Francis Pope and Francis Neal, the Jesuit priest, they were devout. Um, if you don't know what Jesuits are, Jesuits have a really interesting history in the Catholic Church. Um, they were founded by a man by the name of Lopez de Radical, or Racaldi, and he's also known as Ignatius of Loyola. That was that was what he changed his name to yeah. from Spain. Um, he founded what was called the Society of, of Jesus, which is the Jesuit order. And so it was a secret society that was initially started. He petitioned the Pope to allow them to be a part of the working arm of the Catholic Church as sort of these missionaries, these... Um, these um, ap apostolic kind of like we'll plant churches and we'll teach the people we'll 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 baptize we'll do the first rites the last rites that kind of stuff um, and so he was eventually permitted to do that um, and so his work once he got in was so successful that he was actually sainted uh, by one of the popes after his death I think it was around 1620 1622 somewhere in there so uh well can i interject because i please do have some catholic friends and they sure. we've talked about the jesuits um i don't know if you said this but this is how it was explained to me which is also very interesting um i don't know if you read about this when they started it was not only to be missionaries but also to protect other missionaries that were currently in the field mm -hmm. so they were basically military these, kind these of style military, like you know the big boys mm -hmm. that you call in to go and help protect um, these missionaries or do rescue missions and stuff like that. So they, they started off very good. Yeah, they did start off good and it, it went weird. It did go yeah. weird. And, um, in fact, they, you know, this guy, um, Loyola wanted to do this pilgrimage to, to Rome. He was thrown in prison a couple different times. Yeah. Uh, and that's suspicious as well. Like, why would you get thrown into prison? And some of it was anti-Catholic and some of it was, you know, during the crusades and stuff. But, uh, he was really successful um, at what he did, and um, so one of his. So this is this is where it starts to get weird. Like, the you're going to find two main paths into DC. One is a path that's forged by the Catholics, and the other one is forged by the Freemasons. And Freemasons and Catholics don't get along too well. Mm -hmm. They're they're against each other. Um, yeah. Oh, I was going to say we really haven't. Do you mind or? Do you guys mind? I brought up an article real quick about Freemasonry, or were you going to go into the origins of it? I just want to say this one thing about okay. about Loyola. When he was in jail in Spain, uh, he was accused of another crime, and his other crime was that he was accused of being a key figure in the founding of what what would become known as the Illuminati. Hmm. Um, he was actually let off on that particular crime, and I couldn't find out why, but the things that surrounded Loyola that were very interesting was that he uh, he was known to practice a spirituality. Like spirituality was a huge emphasis of his, and so meditation, uh, prayer, you know, things that normal Christians would be a part of. But then there was also other things that he dove into and wrote about, and you can still find his writings today, um, and also things that he was influenced by in metaphysics, logic, um, psychoanalysis, hypnosis, telepathy. Um, he would go into these trances. Um, they were they would oftentimes find him in his room in a trance, um, and he would explain these visions that he'd had. And so he has a really interesting spiritual side to him that was kind of bizarre. And the fact that he was somehow connected at some at some level to the Illuminati, which in its origins came out of Spain, and that's where he was. 
Bavaria, Germany. Well, actually, if you go back, the woman that started was Maria de, uh, I can't think of her name right now, Maria del something of Spain. And so, and then she went, and Adam, Adam Weishoff was one of the guys that really took it to a different level. Hmm. So, yeah, he was actually uh, influential on Adam Weishoff. Um, he was the designated leader that, that would become the face of that cult, you know, the Illuminati. And the Illuminati and the Freemasons have definitely, they're intertwined. There's a lot there going on. So, but, all right. Well, I just wanted to say it was interesting you're talking about the anti-Catholics here in America because the Freemasons came out of England. So that's what I wanted to say. Okay. So. Um, well, there you go, right? <laughs> yeah, so it might have something to do. Yeah. So uh, did you want to check out, do you want to share that, that article you were? No, I, I just wanted to. Make that point that oh. I found it in. Oh, I thought you. I thought you were going to read something. No. Okay. Good. So, um, so anyway, so after this guy, this individual, uh, you know, uh, Francis Pope, uh, he se- he gives his land by. He's convinced by um, by the Jesuit priest to give his land over. So he gives his land over, and one of the things that was so influential to to Pope about D.C. that he liked so much that was you know really amazing to him was the similarities of Rome and uh, in the city of Rome and the city of DC. For instance, there's in Rome, it's known to sit on seven hills. In DC, there's seven hills that exist. Um, probably the most famous one is Capitol Hill. Um, uh, there's the river Tiber's, you know, Tiber River who runs along the Vatican City. Then you have the Potomac River who runs in front of the city of DC in front of the Capitol too. And um, so there's these similarities of Rome and the city of DC and the Vatican. And now this is the rabbit hole that I went down and this is kind of like, I never really realized this about the Vatican and this is kind of crazy. Evidently the Vatican sits on, on a particular hill and on that particular hill was a, it was the former uh, site of a pagan temple to, um, a, a, a goddess by the name of Sybil, C-Y-B-E-L-E, and she had a uh, grandson by the name of Attis, and this is the story. This is crazy, okay, and I'll tie this in as we go through. So this is what it says. This is Attis was the, co- the consort of Sybil in Phrygian and Greek mythology. His priests were eunuchs, uh, as explained by the origin myths pertaining to Attis and his castration. Attis was also a Phrygian god of vegetation, and his self-mutilation, death, and resurrection, he represented the fruits of the earth, which die in winter only to rise again in the spring. Attis was so handsome that his grandmother and goddess Sybil fell in love with him. The boy Attis was unaware of the love Sybil bore him, but since she was a goddess, Attis Attis' opinion didn't count for much. In time, Attis saw the king of Persnus, beautiful daughter, fell in love with her and wished to marry her. The goddess Sybil became insanely jealous and drove Attis mad for revenge. Running crazy through the mountains, Attis stopped at the foot of a pine tree, and there Attis castrated and killed himself. From Attis' blood sprang what would be known as the first violets. The tree took care of Attis' spirit. Attis' flesh would have decayed had not Zeus stepped in to assist in, in the resurrection of Attis, this is the thing. To this day, there is a giant pine cone that sits in the Vatican's courtyard in memory of this pagan god, Attis. <laughs> so you have a pine cone flanked by two peacocks, 
in this crazy thing. Now, this is what's so crazy to me is about is that the city, you know, the Vatican City sits on a pagan temple, all of these things. And so, you know, look, hey, Catholic friends, I know I know we have Catholics listening, and I'm not trying to offend you, but it's kind of hard to explain away some of the things that when you go back historically. For instance, for instance the, the, the city, the Basilica of St. Peter, was established in the year 322. Um, the symbol of that is the two uh, keys that cross over, you know, like almost like they cross over, and then there's a crown in the middle or like a, it's some kind of a crown. It looks like a crown. It's hard to explain. It could be like a, a coronet of some kind. Um, and then you get to something like as crazy as like Bohemian Grove, the skull and bones, 322. Underneath it, it's two crossbones and a skull, 322. The year 322 was when the Vatican was established. And some of the rituals and things they do link back to weird things that you could find historically. It's just, there's things there in this rabbit hole that I went down that I just wish I wouldn't have seen about it. But the fact that the Vatican sits on a location of a former pagan temple and that it has a pine cone out front, um, it's actually called the Cortile della Pigna, I believe is what it's called. It means the pine cone. It, it just represents that pagan symbol of fertility. That's what it represents. And it's associated with the pa- pagan, pagan ancient Re- Israeli god of Baal. And it's also the later cult goddess of Sybil. So, um, and then there's others that say it symbolize, that the pine cone symbolizes the, the pineal gland. Uh, inside our brains that we find oftentimes. Which is referred to a lot of times as the third eye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, But it's a real thing. Like, you can actually detect light from it when your eyes are closed. And that's why it's super important to not sleep with the light on. Don't read, you know, off your phone with <laughs> blue light. Totally affects your circadian rhythm. But it's actually uh, where a lot of your dreams start to happen and are like reacting with the rest of your brain and um yeah it has a lot to do with circadian rhythm um uh any kind of not like like senses that are not so much with your eyes which mm. is interesting because it actually does detect lights it has it detects rods and cones and or it has rods and cones in it to detect light <laughs> but um so once i started like looking into a pine cone because i was thinking about getting one as a tattoo and then realized how much like <laughs> symbology it had not only with the masons but then all of these other pagan re- religions i was like yeah i don't really want to get a pine cone <laughs> tattoo anymore don't worry i had the same thing with an owl i wanted to get an owl yeah. tattoo and uh, yeah biblically owls are not they're not uh favored upon mm-hmm. they're in scripture they're just not not great uh, yeah so that was uh the connection with the with the Catholics, the Vatican, the city of Rome and DC, and even the hill that Capitol Hill, they renamed it Capitol Hill, not because the Capitol sits there, but because one of the hills in Rome is called Capitol Hill. Hmm. Uh, and so um, it just happens to be where our Capitol sits as well. Um, and there's some other things there too that were that were really interesting, but, um, but we're, I wanna move on because I've been doing all the talking. I wanna give you guys some chances to jump in here. So the next guy was a man by the name of Daniel Carroll. Daniel Carroll, was um, he owned with four other men the land that would stretch down uh, what would what would be known as today as the mall. It would go from the Capitol all the way down to the Jefferson Memorial at the end of the mall by the Potomac River. And he was um, 
a very prominent Catholic as well. He he uh, was a very wealthy man. His son was was named Charles Carroll, and um, he Charles Carroll, this guy Daniel's son, was the only Catholic signer of the Constitution. And he was the last signer to die. So he died, I think he was in his 90s when he died. He was the, the longest living signer of the, of the American uh, Constitution. Um, he was very wealthy. He was very influential. And he donated his land as well as the four other men. Um, the name Carroll might sound familiar to you. As I mentioned earlier, you have Carroll County. You have Charles County. He was really good friends with uh, Lord Baltimore which is where we get, uh, you know, Baltimore County and the city of Baltimore. And uh, he had his son, Daniel Carroll, he wanted him to become wealthy and prominent just as himself. So he sent him to a place called Bohemia Manacross, which is a private prep school for wealthy Catholic students located on the Chesapeake Bay. And it was a very private school because, as I said before, Catholicism wasn't very welcome. And so they had to kind of do their own thing, and so uh, they created this one prep school. And then when he graduated, he went to France to study at St. Omer's School, which is a Jesuit university. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. This guy, Daniel Carroll, he was really prominent in America's early history. He, um, you know, obviously he signed the Declaration of Independence, but he also was, his background was uh, what he studied in France and in England. Um, he was the perfect candidate to become someone that would probably fall into Freemasonry pretty easily, to be honest with you. But uh, so those are the two main figures, uh, this guy, Francis Pope, and then obviously Mr. Carroll and his son, Charles Carroll. These guys were the two most famous families. And if you drive through the city of or the state of Maryland, you can see their names everywhere not pope necessarily but you can see um you can see carroll county and and new carrollton and charles county and all of these things you know you can see them and th- that's because of these families these early families that settled the city um and I, so i wanted to kind of get those guys out of the way um do you want me to jump on to the first architecture thing Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because the whole idea was let's talk about the city of like the just why the Freemasonry influence in the city. So the most obvious one when you drive into the city is going to be the Washington Monument, right? Um, mm-hmm. The Washington Monument is well known. It's an it's a phallic symbol. <laughs> an obelisk is another way to pronounce it. Um, or to, to describe it. Um, it was designed by a man by the name of Robert Mills. And he was awarded this by George Marshall. Some of you guys know George Marshall. You might remember that name historically. And he was he hired him to design a monument to Washington before Washington was president because of his war effort. But Washington was kind of kicking back on that and said, I don't, you know, I don't want to do that. Money was tight. He said, let's not do it. And then he became president, and then they decided to go ahead and go forward and do it in honor of the first president, you know, of the United States. And his original design, Robert Mills' original design, was that it was going to look like a Parthenon, hmm. and it would have all these columns, and it would have statues of the signers of the Constitution on the outside, and then it would have a a statue of George Washington in a horse-drawn chariot, sort of this you know noble kind of looking thing, and uh, and it would uh, reside. The, the statue was going to be like 600 feet tall or something ridiculous. It was going to be huge. Um, so the 
unfortunately that got scratched. And so they just went with this tall obelisk uh, that we have now. And it sits on a hill as well. Um, it was f on July 4th of 1848. So this is a little bit after everything. It says the monument's cornerstone was laid. It was embedded with a box containing such items as, as a portrait of George Washington, newspapers, U.S. coins, and a copy of the Constitution was laid in a ceremony attended by thousands. Um, they say that uh, even Abraham Lincoln was in attendance of that, which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. But hmm. how cool would it be to d get that thing out and see that copy of the Constitution? Yeah. You know, oh it's gosh. sealed up. That'd be cool, huh? That'd be pretty sweet. Yeah. But uh, construction began in 1848, and it was completed in 1884. Uh, it was uh, paused several times due to a lack of funds, due to social discord, which this is really cool. It's the know-nothings. This was an anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant group, and the Civil War. So it was stopped by multiple times. The know-nothings, I just want to share this about. This is actually pretty cool. So they're a really strong anti-Catholic group. Um, in the United States at this time. It was a secret society. And they were so frustrated and angry with the project of the Washington Monument that um, they went ahead and took it over And because they had discovered that Pope Pius IX had donated a marble cornerstone and he had engraved in the side of the cornerstone in Latin, from Rome to Washington. And that could be interpreted a lot of ways. Like when I first read that, I was like, okay, big deal from Rome to Washington. Almost like here's a gift from Rome to Washington, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but they interpreted it as the Pope was extending his rule from Rome to Washington mm -hmm. across the Atlantic. And um, they were very troubled by that. So they took the cornerstone with the chiseled letters in it. They, they broke into the shed that it was stored in. They uh, jackhammered it with – well, not jackhammered it. They hit it with, with – uh, hammers, broke it to pieces, took it on a boat, dropped it off over the boat on, into the Potomac River. So there's pieces of the uh, this gift from Pope Pius in the Potomac River. <laughs> if you're ever That's scuba cool. diving, you yeah. can go find them. <laughs> That'd be kind of cool. That would be cool. Yeah, dredged up some chunks of marble with letters on it, you know, mm -hmm. with writing on it. That'd be cool. But uh, anyways... Um, so they, they took over the monument and um, they basically just, uh, they just let it, they just never finished it. And then they eventually just kind of went away. Um, when, it, when the Washington Monument was completed, it was the largest building in the world at that point. So here's where the Masons come in. The Freemasons of the United States of America, there were 250 Masonic lodges that contributed to the cost of building it. One of those was the Knights of Knights Templar Masonic Order. <laughs> we did a whole se segment, a whole podcast on the Knights Templar um, in, our, in our Secret Societies uh, podcast series. So if you want to go listen to them, you should go back and check that out. The Knights Templar were not a great group. Um, they were very, very evil. But um, they, the, the Freemasons that donated and contributed, they were the ones that actually laid the cornerstone uh, of the Washington Monument in its place. Now, here's some interesting facts about it, and then I'm going to throw it out to you guys, and we can discuss. It stands 555 and a half feet tall, and it is 55 feet across at its base. 
The Washington Monument. The Washington Monument is, yeah. yeah. So it stands 555 feet tall. And I was like, I wonder how tall it is. This is what got me on this. I was like, I wonder how tall it is. Uh, wouldn't it be crazy if it was 666 feet tall? You know, and so when I got to the 555, I was kind of bummed. I was like, oh, bummer. But then uh, if you do the math, it is 6,660 uh, inches. So that's mm. 6660 inches tall. Yeah. And it's 666 inches wide at its base. So it is 666 <laughs> <laughs> for those that are looking for satan behind every bush there you go the washington monument it and so it is a phallic symbol which is goes back to ancient you know ancient pre-egyptian um osiris and uh, horus that story yeah i'm reading here that like it was usually in the old kingdom sun temples um it's well known as a sacred symbol to the sun god because it was a pyramid on top of a large shaft basically. Um, <laughs> yeah. And cool. then, and then uh, apparently like I'm reading this, actually this Mason publication from 1919, they're talking about this object was already sacred as far back as the middle of the third millennium BC and will doubtless have been vastly older. Um, you know, you see this kind of symbology in sacred stones uh, as far back as the Kaaba of Mecca. Um, and then it's showing that like usually the Pharaoh would be buried there because um, the Phoenix was very symbolic as to like land on the top of the obelisk um, uh, because that was like the sun God, you know, resurrecting. So it was very interesting that like apparently everyone knew back then what an <laughs> obelisk was supposed to stand for. Right. So. Yeah. Or you could be like my brother-in-law who called it when he was little, the Washington pencil. <laughs> but there's here's an interesting little fact too so there's an uh, obelisk in dc there is an obelisk in rome in vatican city it looks it's smaller than the washington monument but it looks similar hell yeah we got <laughs> and then there's america an, baby then they're there's bigger. a they're bigger <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a third of obelisk that is in london mm-hmm. and it is flanked by two sphinx or uh yeah the sphinx from the egyptians um and so i'm trying i didn't pull out my notes on osiris but if i remember correctly horus was osiris's wife and osiris was cast away um and he ended up dying and his body was chopped up and his wife went looking for him and the only part that she could not find was his penis and so, and and this is like pre-Babylonian story, history stuff. And so she concocted some kind of she made a she made an obelisk, right? And then did some kind of magic and was able to get impregnated by him. I forget how the story goes. I'll have to go back and listen to my Bill Cooper. Uh, yeah, he does a huge teaching on it. It's amazing. He does a huge teaching on it. It's very accurate. So, anyways, so that's where the obelisk comes from. It's literally a phallic symbol. It's a penis. Mm-hmm. We got giant penises in all these cities. In the Vatican City, there's a pine cone for fertility and a giant penis. What are you doing, Catholics? Get you're your, having lots of babies. That's get your doing. stuff together. What are you doing? Come on. Anyways, that's my soapbox for that. So we have three yeah. cities. Um, you guys want to add anything? You want to share anything? I don't know how to um, follow that. 
I thought it was interesting. Uh, I've been reading a lot just about different symbols that you might see in other places. And apparently um, Joseph Smith adopted a lot. He was a Mason and he adopted a lot of the symbology and rituals and rites from Masonry and in, uh, started doing it with uh, the different Mormon rites. Now, I'm not aware. I actually haven't listened to a whole lot of stuff on like what the Mormons do in their different practices. Apparently, it's like kind of eerie. But um, I apparently, I was just talking to my mom today, had some family members who were Mormons and also Masons. And also some people in her hometown who were Masons, but they were like Presbyterian or they were like, you know, like not, not super devout Christians, but it was just like, you know, clubs. It was like a thing you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she was like talking to her brother about, hey, don't do that. Like once she was a believer and she realized the roots of it. And also once you reach the pinnacle, like, you know, mm-hmm. wh- essentially who you were, uh, not really worshiping, but there, there is kind of like a universal deity. Like she's just like warning him like, Hey, you know, be aware of this because I know you're a Christian and you know, you don't want to get in too deep essentially. Mm. So I think it's so interesting that like so many, especially out in like the Midwest and in the country, so many people where they just view it as like a club because it's really old and has a lot of history and symbols and it actually goes a lot deeper than that. Um, and it's not even, like, if you were trying to maintain, uh, you know, a good view of the Bible that's very, like, clear and written out, you probably wouldn't want to get into stuff like that because mm-hmm. they don't even require that you adhere to a certain religion. You just can't be an atheist. Right. Um, you you can even be, like, kind of sort of searching as long as you're praying to a certain deity during these different rituals because it's very much, like, about... Um, searching for the light and kind of like a universal good. Um, so yeah, I, I think, think a lot of people get confused. And when you, when you step into Freemasonry, we never did, we never talked about Freemasons when we were doing our secret societies. Cause it's just, there's a lot of information out there, but also mm-hmm. it's just a deep, it's a really big, um, it's a deep well to dive into, yeah. you know? Well, so I, this is, this is interesting. I just pulled this up. Um, so we talked about obviously. Well, how about since we didn't talk about it, uh, Freemasonry came evolved from the guilds of stonemasons and cathedral builders of the Middle Ages. So that's where they get their name because they were guys that worked with stones, and they're masons. Yeah, yeah. But uh, this is this is interesting. I'm just reading. This is off Britannica. So this is what they say. So this is you know whatever it says. Freemasonry has almost from its inception encountered considerable opposition from organized religion, especially from the Roman Catholic Church and from various states. Freemasonry is not a Christian institution, though it is often mistaken for such. Freemasonry contains many of the elements of a religion. Its teachings enjoin morality, charity, and obedience to the law of the land. In most traditions, the applicant for admission is required to be an adult male, and all applicants must also believe in the existence of a supreme being and in the immortality of the soul. In practice, some lodges have been charged with prejudice against uh, Jews, Catholics, and non-whites. Generally, Freemasonry in Latin countries has attracted those who question religious dogma or, or oppose the clergy 
whereas in the Anglo-Saxon countries, it's the membership is largely drawn from among white Protestants. Hmm. Um, but it, it's interesting that it says it's, um, you know, the church didn't, it, even the Catholic church didn't necessarily like it. Um, well, there's and, several popes that outlawed Catholics from being Freemasons. Yeah. And uh, when, uh, Rachel, when you were talking about that, I remember I, uh, like, I don't know. Oh, I love John MacArthur so much. I mean, yeah. just he's he's the best. And uh, he just constantly blows me away where he'll, like, pick up this. He'll, like, in a really good sermon. He's, like, legit. You don't get more legit, like, big name pastor than him. And when he's preaching from the pulpit, he did, like, a whole sermon about Freemasonry and why you shouldn't be a Freemason. Awesome. Yeah. So I want to say, like, you know, there's a lot of clout that big pastors like that. This is not something new that we were talking about, like, oh, don't join free. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it, from the beginning. I mean, always, we would, I would still, if someone came to me who was a Christian, yeah. and we're like, hey, I'm thinking about joining the Freemasons, they do a lot of good charity work. Yeah. I'd be like, so? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't do it, bro. Yeah. and Like, I, there's no point. And I was going to say, I've heard this from, I don't know, it's always interesting when you listen to other podcasts and... um so take this with a grain of salt. Um, it, it's very interesting because they say the highest level, I think it's the Scottish rite of Freemasonry is the one they always talk about, is the 33rd degree Mason. So whenever you hear that, that's like the, the secret tippy top that, you know, only the the stuff. Um, so I, I want to kind of go in the same vein of what you just said. Like if, if uh, I'm sure that there are tons and tons and tons of, probably not nowadays, but like grandparents of listeners or their dad of older listeners. Right, right. Or, yeah. you know, stuff like that, who their An uncle, their or, uncle yeah. might be a Mason and goes to his lodge. And what do they probably do there? Most of the time is they conduct business. They, yeah, it's like a, they, they meet other people, the business people, they drink beers, they probably hang out. You know what I mean? It's like there is a social club aspect to it that so like i'm saying like don't beat up your but grandpa when you're in the circle he's a Mason. when you're in that circle there's certain privileges that come with right. masons like they give each other business they yeah. they prevent other people from being able to get business yeah like i've heard some crazy stuff about like the business inside like and that's why a lot of the wealthy people are connected to it yeah because um, it keeps it keeps it under control yeah well, my whole thing was don't beat up your grandpa and don't call him a terrible person because he's a Mason. Right. And assume that he exactly. is, you know, but, harvesting adrenochrome, you know, like all this stuff. Don't. But go. there comes a point. Let's be honest. There has yeah. to come. It comes to a point where you can only plead ignorance for so long. And at that point, once you realize that it's it's antichrist, mm -hmm. you know, theology that's being taught to you and right. you're making vows and you're making you know, you know, I don't know a lot of the inner workings of what happens in these rituals, but I do know that they oh, do rituals, they do rituals, right? And they're secret. Um, when you get to that point, at some point as a believer, as a Christian, you're going to be like, wait a second, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, any cult, it's easy to get into hard to get out of. They make it very difficult if you leave, you know, um, I'm sure. Yeah. So it's just it's something to be thought of before you jump in, yeah. Rather than after you're in, right. But no, nonetheless, our founding of our nation was highly influenced by Freemasons 
deists. And unfortunately, there were probably only two legitimate believers. <laughs> like yeah. when I say legitimate, I mean biblical, God-fearing, Jesus, you know, uh, submitted believers on the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, maybe more, but you know, like I said, George Mason and this this other guy, Charles uh, Daniel uh, Carroll, who was Catholic, mm-hmm. but you know, well, I was gonna say I have some stuff that. I think would be pretty interesting to go into. Rachel, do you have anything? Because I was about to. Do you want to hop in here or? Oh, uh, no. I the only I've got little random comments and stuff like you know the emphasis that is put on the early stages of masonry is uh, philanthropy and you know donating and volunteering and like it's something that you do kind of almost like to put on your resume or just like mm-hmm. you know it gets you clout essentially. Um, it's a brotherhood. It's a fraternity. Um, actually, apparently, one of my great aunts or something was part of the women's yeah. uh, version, the um, Order of the Eastern Star. And so it was just something you did kind of to, you know, to benefit your community um, at the early, early levels. And I don't think a lot of those people understood the spirituality behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, obviously, because of how spiritually vague it is at the beginning, it, it seems very welcoming because you don't have to belong to a specific religion. You just have to belong to a religion or, you know, worship some kind of deity. So that's where any Christian should have a red flag that, hey, that's kind of weird that, like, you're just participating in something and worshiping whatever God you feel comfortable with. Like, I feel like there are some denominations that do that, too. What is it called? Um, Universalists or something like that. Right, yeah. Um, Unitarian Universalists. So, um Anytime that comes up where it doesn't really matter what God you believe in, because we're all believing in the same, you know, God of the universe, you know, deity mm-hmm. of enlightenment and love and, you know, design of the whole earth. Like, no, we don't all believe in the same God. So right. um, anyone who's telling you that, uh, you know, you got to be wary of it because so much once you start reading about masonry kind of starts to reek of enlightenment, illumination, um, you know, just, yeah, it gets into uh, almost the demonic um, because it is not Christ. It's obviously mm-hmm. not Christ. So that's all I was going to say is, you know, it starts out as a something you do because it's like charity work, but then very quickly it's not. Yeah. So I was going to say, it seems like it's kind of like the same thing, uh, the same trajectory. <laughs> That like someone could get into like new age stuff where they're just like, oh, it's just cool because it's just peace and love and I'm all about that. And, you know, meditation opens and burn. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that same yeah. thing. So we, we're pretty, uh, we, our thoughts are known that you shouldn't join stuff that's not rooted in Christ. But so I wanted to talk, you talked about the know nothing party. Um, if you guys will indulge me. I've got two different kind of rabbit trail things okay. that are very interesting um, I think they're interesting, and this is a third of my pod. This is my I own this podcast is mine, so you're gonna listen to it because <laughs> it might be interesting to you. Right. So we talked about you said the Know Nothing Party, which is this uh, secret society. They actually sounded pretty cool. They're also called the Native American Party, as in Native American, not like true nationalists, huh? Nationalists, yeah, or the America Party. Cool, but there is also a party um, 
which John Quincy Adams was actually a leader of at a point in time. And it was called the Anti-Masonic Party. Wow. In America. And it was the first third party in America, which is pretty interesting. Because they always say the Whig Party was the first third party. Well, so it says it's uh, so it says the anti-Masonic party, it strongly opposed Freemasonry as a single issue party. That's their only thing. <laughs> they only were formed just because they hate Masons. That's awesome. And said it later aspired to become a major party by expanding its platform to take positions on other issues. After emerging as a political force in the late 1820s, most of the anti-Masonic party members joined the Whig party in the 1830s ah. and the party disappeared after 1838. So it says right here. Um, the party was founded in the aftermath of the disappearance of William Morgan, a former Mason who had ultimately become a prominent critic of the Masonic organization. Uh, many believe that the Masons had murdered Morgan for speaking out against Masonry, and subsequently many churches and other groups condemned Masonry. Uh, it says, as many Masons were prominent businessmen and politicians, the backlash against the Masons was also a form of anti-elitism. Um, kind of cool. Mass opposition to Masonry eventually uh, coalesced into a political party before and during the presidency of John Quincy Adams. There's a period of political realignment. The anti-Masons emerged as an important third party alternative to Andrew Jackson's Democrats and Adams National Republicans. Oh, so I guess uh, I think the history gets in there later. Uh, I might have misspoke when I said it was a leader, but they say he's a leader. Um, so check this out. What happened? Because this story about William Morgan is pretty freaking interesting. Um, so I'm going to read this article real quick. Um, I think it's pretty good. In the early morning hours of September 12, 1826 at Bad Badova, New York, a bad of a, okay, whatever. He's from New York. He was a stonemaker <laughs> called, uh, named William Morgan. He went missing from the local jail. Since mm. he was not a man of importance, in fact, he was known as a bit of a drunk, a drifter who, according to some guy that wrote a book, um, had moved his family relentlessly throughout the countryside, hauling his wife, Lucinda, and their two young children from one failed venture to the next. But Morgan was more than a vagabond than the vagabond he appeared to be. He had also managed to infiltrate the secret society of Freemasons and was threatening to publish a book exposing the powerful organization's tactics. As a result of his plan, the local Masons began harassing Morgan, hoping to stop him uh, publishing the book. After being held in prison on trumped-up charges, Morgan was bailed out by a group of Masons and carried away, never to be seen again. The conspiracy surrounding his disappearance fueled local anti-Mason sentiment, which in turn led to the national anti-Mason movement that shook the core. Uh, you know, they started that. Um, so I just wanted to say that that was pretty interesting. Just that story um, that he got dragged out to jail. There's a lot, there's a lot more to the story. I won't read yeah. it, but literally this guy infiltrated. Wanted, he's a whistleblower. He was going to be a whistleblower on the Freemasons and they bailed him out of jail and murdered him, and that's what started the first third party in America. Wow. So, I mean, the in Masonic influence is un undoubted, right? Right. I mean, so, it's I, you know, so maybe I'm changing my stance a little bit of, like, I'm getting pumped up. I'm, like, really, 
Like I, well, I mean, I already hated Mason, but like it's it's interesting when we go back maybe hating masons is like the most american thing you can do <laughs> so it's almost like i don't want to say like at the beginning of it i was like everyone's going to get mad at us because we're like that's crapping awesome. on the founders and now i want everyone to be riled up and be like yeah that's maybe super the, american maybe the riots will go burn down the masonic temples oh i don't think they'll do that the blmers you know what's crazy? I was just reading about all the different presidents who were Masons. I think there was at least 14 of them. Um, and many of them did not swear on the Bible when they were being sworn in. Hmm. Um, hmm. Including Theodore Roosevelt. He did not swear on the Bible. What did they swear and I was like, on? You used to think you were really cool. Um, was he on? the one with the big teeth and the Book mustache? Of the law. Yes, I think he swore on a law book or like, it wasn't the Constitution or something. And then there was another president who swore on the Catholic, um, what was it called? It was like a Catholic booklet or something like that, but it wasn't the Bible. Hmm. So, um, but yeah, like I was looking back at all of these different presidents who were Masons and I was like, you know, you were like, when you look at things through the lens of just liberal or conservative or Christian or non-Christian, like there's, there's different things where you, you miss out on like what the, their other beliefs might've been. And so all these different presidents, whether or not they were conservative or liberal or Christian or non-Christian, like they, a lot of these things were uniting them in that the Masonic influence. And so when you read about what the Masons actually believed, you're like, okay, so yes, you were a Christian. Yes, you were conservative, but you were also a Mason. Did you not understand the different origins of it. Did you not understand the different other like traditions and, mm-hmm. um, you know, elements of that. So you just kind of have to be careful of what club you're in essentially. Yeah. Um, hmm. so it's just interesting to, to read over and it puts it in a new light because once you're saved and you're a believer and you're trying to view things through the lens of what's the truth, it actually kind of helps you have a clearer view on it versus just like even being an American, like, you're, you're not going to be anti-American just by looking at what the founders believed right? and right. being like, well, I don't really, I don't really agree with what you did, but you know, you guys all grouped together and started something great. You just have to like, look at it through the lens of, um, how does this align with the word of God? Right. And it's kind of like what yeah. you were saying earlier about like Mormons, very moral people, but to yeah, be, to exactly. be, to, to be blunt, they're not saved. Yeah. They're not, yeah. they're not going to heaven. So yeah. their kingdom work is not for the kingdom of of Christ, the risen Lord, mm-hmm. the resurrected one. So the the you know you can have moral good philanthropy and you know things that are helpful in Masonic you know tradition, but at when at the end of the day, it doesn't have any eternal value. You know, it's not gonna it's not yeah. gonna break bring home that. But it is a very spiritual thing. Because they enter yeah. into these rituals and they secret handshakes and passwords and you know you had to wear certain decor and rings and they have they you know there's like all kinds of stuff and you know we were going to talk you know I was talking about possibly doing a series on just all the symbology like the ladder and the columns and the checkerboard and there's so much yeah <laughs> yeah there's so much that's there um the, I was gonna I was gonna bring up something though um it's so um, like works is so emphasized with Mormons, with Masons, um, even with Catholics to some degree works and the things that you're doing in order to be 
holy or outstanding or upright, it's so emphasized versus being saved by grace through faith. So it's very interesting, um, like how seeing how uh, Mormonism was influenced by the Masons, mm. and yet it is so empty, even though they're such good people. And you would probably never think that they believed all these weird things. Yeah. You're just seeing that, oh, they're so good. They're so, you know, they're always like donating to people and they're so philanthropic. How do you say it? Philanthropic? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's so kind. And so, yeah, it's just interesting. Like, but they're not safe and they're not, they don't have hope, you mm-hmm. know? So just, it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I will say the one good thing about the Mormons right now. Yeah. Um, as the world is ending, um, when everything hits the fan, you should be friends with Mormons beforehand because <laughs> they stockpile all the stuff you need to survive for, I think it's six or seven years. Oh, really? So if you have a gun, you should go to the local oh, Mormon geez. family and steal some of their food oh. and leave a Bible and what tell if, them to what think What if they have, have a like- gun? Massive houses and they've got like massive family compounds and (laughs) multiple vehicles. I'm just saying, there's more family. You could be generalizing a little bit, but (laughs) (laughs) no, I know. I mean, Um, yeah. Well, so here's something that's very interesting. I don't know if you came across this, but when we were talking about it, um, this popped into my head. So, follow me again if you guys will indulge me. Mm -hmm. Francis Bacon. You, oh. got, you guys probably have heard about that. Yeah. He was uh, some English stuff I don't care about. He was a <laughs> first v- vi- Viscount of St. Alban. I don't know what that means. He was, uh, blah, 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 blah. But he was most well known, as more pe- most people know, of uh, he was the father of empiricism. And his work, it says, his works argued for the possibility of scientific knowledge based only upon inductive reasoning and careful observation of events in nature so basically he was one of the found like isaac newton francis bacon he's one of the first founders of uh what we still use as modern science so hugely influential guy most people know the name so he wrote a book and this is this is a whole other thing that uh, i think you guys will be very interested in if you don't know he wrote a, a uh book called new atlantis oh yeah and it says uh so i'm just going to read this really quickly new atlantis is an incomplete utopian novel by sir francis bacon published post humor humor humorous post i can't say it it was published after he died (laughs) there you go it was published in 1620 (laughs) i don't know why i can't say it right now humorously post humorously no that's after funny post post Posthumous. Humus. <laughs> we're horrible. Oh my goodness. All right. So it was published after he died. Uh, it appeared unheralded and tucked into the back of a larger, a longer work of natural history. Uh, so this is, this is, this is a, um, <laughs> this is a thing. This is his book he wrote. Um, so I'm reading off of this. This is very interesting. Um, uh, it says, Francis Bacon played a leading role in creating the English colonies, especially in Virginia, the Carolinas, and Newfoundland in northeastern Canada. His government report on the Virginia colony was submitted in 1609. In 1610, Bacon and his associates received a charter from the king to form the treasurer and the company 
man, all this old English, they can't spell right. The treasurer and the company of adventurers and planter of the city of London and Bristol for the colony or plantation in Newfoundland. That's the name of a thing that they started. And they set John Guy to form a colony there. Um, so he actually was very, very influential. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States and author of the Declaration of Independence, wrote, Bacon, Locke, and Newton, I consider them as the three greatest men who have ever lived without any exception and as having laid the foundation of those superstructures which have been raised in the physical and moral sciences. And just so, since we're talking about stuff and presidents and killing this, uh, you know, all these people about uh, America was founded by a bunch of Christians and all that stuff. Um, Thomas Jefferson, probably every one of you know this, but I'll just remind you all. He wrote a Bible, his version of the Bible, yeah. where he took out all of the miraculous works of Jesus. I think it was just the New Testament. Um, so he was a deist. Um, mm -hmm. But so check this out. This is ties kind of everything together with what I've been just brought up. This article is called, Is America the New Atlantis? And if so, has its development been overseen? Mm. So, uh, and I will just bring this up um, as well, since if people are not aware of what the old Atlantis would have been if we're talking about the new Atlantis. Old Atlantis was a island uh, that was written about, um, not by Homer, uh, Plato. I think Plato wrote about it. Uh, I can't remember which one, one it wasn't the Republic. I don't think it was the Republic. I can't remember. In one of his books, he talked about an old civilization that was far, far technologically superior and they lived in peace. And it was like, the, it was basically Eden, mm -hmm. like uh, the humans mm -hmm. recreation of Eden. And it fell into the sea and we'd never been able to find it. So that's what Atlantis was. And Aquaman was one of them. <laughs> yes, and the Little Mermaid. <laughs> and the Little Mermaid. mermaid. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, that's that's where. It, so, I'm gonna ha start reading this article. While most dismiss the notion that Atlantis did at one time exist, there is still debate as to whether the Lost World was very much a real place. There are even people that believe it is slowly being rebuilt, both literally and also in influence and ideology. Some believe that the United States, once known as the New World, is the intended reincarnation of Atlantis. With the pig pilgrims also went the old and secretive societies, the Freemasons, some of which are said to have had their roots go right the way back to ancient Egypt and Babylon. Mm -hmm. If ancient Egypt, for example, was indeed built out of the remnants of a stricken society of Atlantis following its tragic downfall, then it would make a certain amount of sense that this might be the case. So the importance of Sir Francis Bacon and George Washington. One person in particular who appears to have been very influential in the creation of the United States was Sir Francis Bacon, a member of such secret societies. He was a Freemason and whose ideology on the creation of the new world appears to have been very much at the heart of the thinking minds of early America. In 1910, a Newfoundland stamp was discovered that had the statement, Lord Bacon, the guiding spirit in the colonization scheme, written on it. Some even call Sir Francis Bacon the real founding father of America. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, even went so far as to call him one of the three most influential people on the planet at the time. I read that quote earlier. Hmm. So with this in mind, is it possible that the result, an end game of a master plan 
to create a new world with an with the ancient ancient ideology of a lost one, installed and carried out by Masonic secret societies. There are question marks there. Perhaps more <laughs> interesting was the development of the United States overseen and influenced, and if so is this <laughs> to assist the alleged secret societies in carrying out their plans or to guard against them? I'm going to do that to signify. So we know, right? Yeah. That's a question. There are plenty of unusual sightings and phenomena in the early years of the United States. The aforementioned Thomas Jefferson him, himself spoke of a strange incident he witnessed in Baton Rouge, Louisiana in 1800. Jefferson sent a communication from Natchez regarding a sighting of a strange object by a man um, from Baton Rouge named William Dunbar. The communication spoke of a strange object in the sky that mm -hmm. passed over the heads of those who witnessed it from southwest to northeast in less than a minute. It was described as being the size of a large house and around 80 feet long and appeared to be the color of the sun near the horizon, crimson red. As it passed over the heads of the onlookers, it lit up the earth beneath them and considerable heat could be felt. Jefferson then went to describe how modern day scientists and ufologists would have alike would describe the craft breaking the sound barrier. This is a quote from Jefferson, apparently. Immediately after it disappeared in the northeast, a violent rushing noise was heard as if the phenomenon was bearing down the forest before it. And in a few seconds, a tremendous crash was heard similar to that of the largest piece of ordnance causing a very sensible earthquake. Sensible, not sizable. That's very funny that he says sensible earthquake. Right. Um, if indeed it was an intelligently guided UFO, what would their interest be? Um, almost a quarter of a century earlier, another strange incident. Are they just talking more about UFOs? Um, so anyways, I'm just going to go ahead and skip all the way that, um, cause it talks about a lot more stuff that all has to do with this Atlantis. Um, Where's the other thing that I was going to go? You know what? Uh, we'll just go ahead and cut it off with that. But basically, <laughs> in the um, book itself, I, must, I closed the thing. Uh, the whole thing of the new Atlantis that he wrote out um, was this utopian society that was tolerant of all, all things. Here's the plot. Uh, it says the novel depicts a mythical island, Benselum, which was discovered by the crew of a European ship after they are lost in the Pacific Ocean somewhere west of Peru. The minimal plot serves the graduate blah, 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 blah. Many aspects of the society and history of the island are described, such as the Christian religion, which is reported to have been born there as there is a copy of the Bible and a letter from the Apostle St. Bartholomew arrived there miraculously a few years after the ascension of Jesus. A cultural feast in honor of the family institution called the Feast of the Family, a college of sages, the Solomon's House, the very eye of the kingdom to which order God of heaven and earth has uh, vouchsafed the grace to know the works of the creation and the secrets of them as well as to discern between divine miracles, works of nature, works of art, and impostures and illusions of all sorts, and a series of instruments, processes, and methods of scientific research that were employed in the island of Solomon's house. Um, it says that there are actual Jews and Christians living together, and one of the things that was so mind-blowing about this 
I this book that he wrote is that uh, in the society it says like the Jew walks around and the Christians don't bother him and he doesn't <laughs> bother them. So he had a lot of this stuff. And so this uh, is bacon, right? Right. In this the- is in the new Atlantis. Right. And he devised this form of government <clears throat> justice, all this stuff. So it's a very interesting book. Um, I read it a while ago. Yeah. Ages ago in school actually. But um, anyways, a lot of the founding things that we took in the declaration and the values that we hold dear as Americans were first written um, in this book. Wow. So that's what I was going to say. Bacon was a Freemason. Bacon was a Freemason. Bacon the Mason. Bacon the Mason. Um, Yeah, I I think there was, if I'm not mistaken, I think there were probably six or seven Freemasons that signed the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, probably so, more. Yeah. That's all for me. Man. Well, yeah, I've heard a little bit about Atlantis before. That's pretty cool. Um, it always comes up, you know, when, when you... But the UFO thing actually was pretty cool. I had actually stumbled upon that story uh, when I was doing research for this. Uh, it's kind of a crazy story that they had a UFO sighting back in the, you know, 1700s. Yeah. Sorry, I read a little too far on that. No, part, that's but. cool. That's cool. But no, I mean, you think about it. There there was something else that I read about, you know, the origins of, uh, through a book that I bought um, about DC too, that was talking just briefly about, um, it's it was kind of emphasizing all, if you go around the city, you're going to see a lot of zodiac signs and symbols and stars. And um, there is speculation that the uh, three stars, there's two, two different um, theories on the three stars of the flag of D.C. One of them is that you have the city of London, the city of Vatican City, and then you have D.C. And they're all independent on, of themselves. Of their, They're not part of the, like, for instance, D.C. doesn't fall under the jurisdiction of the federal government um, or the Constitution or anything like that. It, it's its own rule. London's the same way. And so is the Vatican City. Um, so they were there's speculation that you know DC is the military arm of this whole thing, and the you know the religious arm of it is the Vatican, and then the financial arm would be London, you know. And so uh, they're all connected in some way, weird weird way, you know. And you have your you know your elites that are uh, running things, and you know from their you know ivory towers or whatever you want to call it. Um, the other speculation for the three stars on the flag in DC was that there was a, um, an African-American guy that was an astronomer and right at the beginning of the city in the time when they were just starting to basically, this is going to sound hilarious, but drain the swamp, Mm. there was the foggy bottom area, which is going to be the Georgetown area right by the Kennedy center. That whole area was just marshy, very foggy. They call it foggy bottom. And, and it was also like, um, a, a lot of frogs and toads and just a lot of noise and stuff. They started to drain that out and reroute water and do all kinds of stuff. And as they were formalizing the city and, um, on the day of kind of the, it was the day that the city was going to be kind of dedicated or whatever. Um, what in that morning there, this, this, this astrologer discovered that there were three stars and there was actually a lunar eclipse that morning where the moon went in front of the sun as the sun was rising, the sun, the moon was kind of coming down very low on the horizon, but there was also Saturn, Venus 
and Mars were avail were visible in the on the horizon. Hmm. So they thought those three stars would indicate possibly on the flag of those three stars. So, uh, you know, it's debatable. So, um, anyways, Rachel, do you want, you got anything you want to add or comment on? Um, well, now that I, I've actually pulled up a couple of different, um, dictionaries and <laughs> encyclopedias of different Masonic symbols. And they're actually kind of upfront with a lot of stuff because they're very proud of like the history and there's yeah. so much to delve into. So I think like coming up with a timeline of how it all got started back in the middle ages would be really cool. And then the different symbols and like why they originated. And a lot of it started with um, Solomon. Um, like they put a lot of emphasis on like Solomon's temple and the Masons and all the architects and the builders there. And that's kind of what's like, like the industry aspect of it. And like um, being really, really well versed in your trade is kind of passed down with your apprentices, um, which is something that when you are a lower level Mason, you start out apprenticing. And, um, but anyway, um, so like there's like things like the two pillars and there's things like they have three lights and a Bible and a cube and a compass on their altar in the different rites. And so each of those things has um, a meaning behind it. And then um, uh, like the two pillars that you always see in Masonic um, imagery stand for the two pillars of uh, Solomon's temple. And I think one of them is called Boaz and then another one is called, I don't remember what it is, Hiram or something like that. But way back when they actually did have some history with like Tamas um, the, uh, what is it? Um, pre-Babylonian God or like pre, um, Mesopotamian God. So it's, it's very interesting that like, I, and you never know what Solomon got into when he had all those wives and whatnot. <laughs> but, um, I think it's really interesting that like they, they've tried to like take all the symbology, a lot of which might've been pagan influenced from Solomon's, uh, reign, but then like made it a good thing, like trying to, um, like excellence in your craft and like industry um, as their, uh, I guess their campaign slogans of like what they're trying to do with their group. Um, but another symbol that they have is the beehive, which mm -hmm. I think I saw all the time when I was in Utah. They have another, and that's like um, systemic industry. Like the bees, this is a quote that I read um, on one of their publications. The bees are the only insect that have a king or like a ruler. Um, and so they're very, you know, they're very obedient and they're in, they're very industrious and they all have a system and they just, they work really, really, really hard. But then you see that imagery in not only Masonic, um, uh, you know, symbols, but then in the Mormon symbols too. And they call Utah the beehive state. Um, you see it all over in Salt Lake city and it's just the industry, um, and being very industrious and hardworking and it's a big virtue um so hmm. it's very interesting now that now that i'm aware of those things i see it popping up in these different organizations so yeah now that you now that you mentioned the three stars too i'm seeing that a lot too like <laughs> there's three three stars behind uh, the president when he's signing some stuff and so it's just yeah. really interesting like the blue yeah. the blue color you know um mm -hmm. and the gold the blue and the gold are two hey, don't give things. all the things away for yeah. that episode We'll oh, do it. All right, we'll do it. Yeah, we'll, we'll oh, touch yeah. I want to touch more on some of the architecture, too, of the city. So we'll yeah. talk some more about some buildings and stuff that uh, for our, in, a, in the next episode. But 
man, this has been pretty cool. I think, um, I think, you know, the influence of, of the Freemasonry cult on the United States is undoubted and it's very evident. And, uh, as Christians, I, there's nothing wrong with us understanding and knowing these things. Um, uh, what's bothersome to me is, and I'll just end on this, is that it's so subversive. Like it's under the surface and it, and it's got an agenda that it actually is working towards. Um, and, uh, it's not, you know, it's satanic. Like, I'll just be honest. It's satanic. And uh, there's probably going to be a hit on my life now. Um, so it was good to know you guys, but, um, anyways, <laughs> just call, tell me I got Morganed, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways, but, uh, yeah, we'll connect next week with more about this and we'll, um, talk a little bit more about the structures in this, in the buildings in DC. Um, the layout of the city and some of the people that were influential in that as well. So um, that's what you can look forward to in the next episode of all at war. Well, Rach, it's been awesome. Rosie. Yeah. Thanks for having me here again. Yeah, of course. Of course. Rosie, as yeah. usual, it's good. Yeah. It's good. Um, and don't forget to get yourself some uh, Kahi, coffee, Kahi yeah. coffee, go to Kahi coffee, check the link in our show notes and uh, go buy some coffee and support all at war. I'm just going to say it. Will do. <laughs> All right. Y'all, we'll catch you next time. Stay Bye. hydrated. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the All Out War podcast today. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and we'll catch you next time.